All right. Well, should we jump in and get started? It is five o'clock, and uh, good to see you all back. Were there handouts? Abby, were there still handouts out there on the table? Check and see. We may have to run a few more copies. And we do have an extra one here. Okay, I think we're okay if, uh, right now. So There's nothing too profound on those, but it helps with some of the words that I'm going to bring out, like costa, what is it? Cos, cosmetology? <laughs> Cosmological argument? <laughs> Something like that. Right. <laughs> Something like that. All right. Yeah, well, um, so we'll, we'll get started. Um, and I'm going to, in some ways, pick up a little bit where we left off last week, but then we'll get into some new material uh, this week as we uh, jump into the study of the, the doctrine of God. That word doctrine means teaching, right? It's essentially, we're asking the question, really, what does the Bible teach about who God is? And that's what this class is going to be all about this year. And we'll look at different things about his existence as we're going to look at tonight and next week. The fact that God is and he exists and everybody knows it, whether they'll acknowledge it or not. That's the whole premise. Um, and then um, and we'll deal with uh, things of his nature, his triunity, his attributes, his will. And then we'll see where we're at and if we have enough more time in like the class as far as, you know, if we're not too far into the spring or whatever by then, we will maybe um, focus on each of the persons of the Godhead for some time, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But I don't know uh, how much we'll be able to do that, and um, we'll just have to play it by ear. So, all right, looks like everybody is here that's probably coming, and so let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father, we're just asking now for your help, as there is no, we can do nothing apart from your help. And we just ask that you would help us now to study about you and to come to right conclusions, um, to have good theology, and that it would uh, motivate us, God, to worship you and to express that worship through love and obedience in our lives. We know this is your will for your people. And yet our flesh and the devil fight against it. And we are by nature prone to take what we know about you and push it down in our own unrighteousness. And we are prone in our natures to be idolaters. God, we confess that to find other things to glorify and worship. And so we just pray that tonight would be one way in which you help us in the journey of knowing you and loving you and following you in our lives. So I pray for the Spirit's gifting, not for me, but for your people that have come tonight to learn about you. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I just put on the top of the handout there a quote here from Jonathan Edwards. And he's talking about what theology is in essence, and so I I decided to start with that. Um, And he said, God 
himself, in other words, he's talking about what it is and what, the, what we're doing here. He says, God himself, the eternal three in one, is the chief object of this science. Now, notice that key word there, right, uh, science, is what we talked about last week. It's a way we don't like to think or don't often think about uh, when we think about um, uh, theology itself. We don't think about it in the realm of sciences, or if you went into the universities, you wouldn't go to the religions department um, in, in the, and find it in the science building. But uh, it's been referred to in the past as a science. And that is because, remember, we're studying the objective data of, like we'll look at tonight, divine, uh, general revelation, creation itself. And we can learn about God there. And then we'll look at Scripture as well. And, and scripture is that special revelation that you know God by. One thing in theology you have to understand is that God is incomprehensible completely. But yet he is knowable and we can know much about him. And we can never learn in our lifetime as much as he has provided for us to learn about him. We can't know as much as we, we could know if we had infinite knowledge because God is infinite, right? So you can, in the study of God, you can spend your entire life devoted 100% to knowing who God is and what God is like and never fully arrive at all of who he is and yet still learn much about him. And he's made himself knowable in those two ways of general revelation and specific revelation. But anyway, so Jonathan Edwards is saying that God himself, the eternal three-in-one, is the chief object of this science And next, Jesus Christ as God, man, and mediator, and the glorious work of redemption, the most glorious work that was ever wrought, then the great things of the heavenly world, the glorious and eternal inheritance purchased by Christ and promised in the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit of God on the hearts of men, our duty to God, and the way in which we ourselves may become like God himself in our measure. All these are the objects of are objects of this science, or all these are the objects of theology. So all of those could be headings of theology that we're talking about, but in this class, this year, we're dealing with the first, God himself, okay? We're dealing with the first, what he calls the chief object of this science, namely, God himself, the eternal three-in-one, And that statement, that whole statement is what we're studying this year and it is packed with more material than we could possibly hope to get through in these upcoming months, okay? So just kind of breaking that up in this vast area of studying theology, we could have chosen, you know, our, what they call Christology, the doctrine of the Christ, Jesus himself, could have studied about the Son, and spent a whole year doing that. Or we could have done that with the Holy Spirit or the work of redemption, the salvation itself. All of those are headings of theology. But what we're dealing with this year is God himself, the eternal three-in-one. Okay, so I'm just trying to make sure we understand what we're doing as we embark upon this journey of the doctrine of God. All right, so... um, 
Before we jump into the uh, existence of God, which is what we're going to talk about tonight and how we think about the existence of God and how we know God exists, I wanted to give you a motivational verse or two from Hebrews. So actually just turn to Hebrews 11, will you? Because I know I have one of them on there, but as I was looking at this beforehand, I think there's more that we can see. Um, why study about God and what is required to, to gain the benefit that we would want in our study of God. What is required? And that's what these verses will answer, okay? Um, and of course, in, in Hebrews 11, he's talking about faith. Much of what we're talking about this morning, um, faith uh, being the way that we are right with God and nothing else brings us into that right relationship other than faith. And he talks about faith in this way. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, maybe even the evidence of things not seen. I don't know if you think of your faith that way, but in my view, one way I look at the world, the history of the world, and think there is a God and I know it, and not only that, but the God of the Bible is the God the only true God, is the faith of his people. The very fact of the history of people who have believed in him, right? And these are people, faith isn't this idea that it's not a blind leap in the dark. Um, and it's, it's, there's, we would use words to describe it, or the author of Hebrews, things like this, assurance and the conviction of things that are not seen. So faith is never wishy-washy, is it? It's very concrete, very real thing in which we believe. And then he says in verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And uh, by faith we come to this understanding as we'll look at creation in just a few minutes and how it plays a role in teaching us that God is. And what are we saying here? We are the people that come and we believe that the universe was created by the word of God, the very rhema of God. That is his actual statements. And that, of course, we see in Genesis chapter one. He spoke, things came into existence. Well, how do we know that? Well, how, do we, how are we assured of that? By faith in what God has revealed to us in his word. And by the way, as we talk a little bit tonight, there, there's somewhat of what we're going to talk about is in the realm of what we would call apologetics, okay? That is where you make a defense of the faith. But please understand that there is no defense of the faith that is so concrete, so sealed up, that it's going to satisfy the skeptics. And that's what brings me into this in chapter 11 really what I was going to show you, down verse 6, when we're studying theology, we have to understand that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Literally, they must believe that he is. Okay? Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him, you see. In other words, 
theological studies for someone who doesn't believe that God is, they're approaching this as a skeptic, let's say. Let's say a skeptic walked in this room, I'm scanning the, the field here and I see no skeptics. I know most of you and know that you believe and so I'm preaching in the choir most of the time, okay? But imagine a skeptic walks into this room with no faith in God, just listening to what I'm saying so that he can refute what I'm saying, studying what I'm saying so that he can refute what I'm saying. What profit is he going to benefit from this class? Zero. He's going to profit nothing from it unless God in his grace breaks into his heart and causes him to be born again and he sees it and he repents and he trusts in Christ. Other than that, no profit at all. But friends, there's something similar to it in us. Okay? The study of theology is profitless if it isn't um, in faith that God is and. Here's what's really cool. That he's what? According to this verse. The rewarder of those who seek him. So if you think about how great that is, if you're here tonight to learn about God, so you've heard about doctrine and God, it's like, okay, I'm gonna give myself to this for an hour on Sunday nights, just learning about God, listening and teaching God, looking up the verses with him, thinking about these things, and I wanna do that because I wanna know God more, and I want to love God more, and I wanna understand God more, and I wanna experience God more in my life, then you can be assured by faith, that God is going to reward your seeking of him. And what is the reward ultimately, do we think? Blessings, right? When you think of that idea that God rewards those who seek him, by faith they're seeking him. What kind of rewards are we thinking? Very quick answers, what do we think? Peace? Answers, answers yeah. Eternal life, yes. Discernment, right? Assurance, transformation. I'm hearing all these. These are all right. What is it? Crowns. Crowns, yeah. Okay. Rewards in that sense in a very, yeah. Now, here's the other thing. In essence, I think that the number one reward that we receive when we seek God by faith is not all the things he gives per se, but it's himself. It's himself, right? All these other things are wonderful blessings that are rewards that God gives in the seeking of him. But ultimately, the reward of seeking God by faith, and what you really, you have to have in your mind right now is that this just plays one small role in my reward that I'm seeking and the reward ultimately I'm seeking is God himself. Do you know what? Like if you read the end of Revelation, right? We all know how the story ends. So I'm no spoiler alerts here. There's a new earth. And on that new earth are all God's people. His new creation people. And we're in glory. And you know what? One of the key things it says is that I will be their God. I will be with them. I'll be their God. They will be my people. We're going to live in the presence of God and enjoy him forever and ever and ever. God is the rewarder by granting to us all those blessings we named and mostly himself. So our study and our, our theology 
in our seeking of God is to get the blessing of knowing God and experiencing God. As the, probably the most famous catechism question ever written, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. And what's the second part though? To enjoy him forever. So I think one good prayer, we pray as we're studying about God, as we say, we're seeking you, God. We believe that you are. We believe that you is <laughs> and are. And we know you're there and we want to know you and we want to experience you in our lives. And we approach God that way in faith. And the Bible says he rewards it. Now, here's the thing with theology. Theology, I have found, is not always immediately gratifying. Okay? We can run into mistakes here. Like, we'll actually think that the study itself sometimes is immediately gratifying to our senses. Well, it can be sometimes. I can sometimes feel the reward of discovery, the reward of God's presence, the reward of peace, uh, these other things. We know. I can feel that in the moment sometimes, and other times it's not there. But we approach it by faith consistently, knowing that in our consistent study about God and our consistent seeking of Him, the rewards come and He manifests Himself in wonderful ways. And sometimes it'll be something that comes to you later. Or think about this, when you study about the attributes of God and we're going to learn about God's attributes of goodness, right? These are the ones we love to think about. His grace, his loving kindness, his faithfulness to us. And you may be studying and thinking about those things and that's nice, that's nice. And that very week, you run into a trial of your faith and the storm clouds roll into your life and you didn't see it coming and now all of a sudden you're in the midst of suffering, then you knowing God's attributes of goodness become really important, don't they? And maybe even as you're walking through that trial, those attributes of goodness become what you're clinging to. Like, I don't understand this, but I know this. God is good, and he is faithful, and he loves me, and he's with me. I know that much, right? That's God rewarding you for seeking him with himself, essentially, okay? So I'm, I give us things, and maybe I'll do this time to time, just to motivate consistency and hard work in thinking about God and studying about God. Because there may be nights where you're going to be like, I really don't get what we're saying here or whatever. It's a little confusing. Or maybe there's going to be nights where, you know, it's, it, you're tired or whatever. What is the motivation for it? Well, we get God himself. All right. So we need to have our faith. Uh, the reward is God himself. Chief. Okay. All right. Now, next thing, and this is on your handout here. Uh, memorize these two verses. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Anybody know what this is called? What do the Hebrew people call this? Jewish people call it. Shema, right? This is the Shema. This is something Jews, faithful Jews, recite to themselves every day in a prayer. This is just something they remind themselves every day of. 
It's called the Shema because the word Shema means to hear. And if you ever opened up to Deuteronomy 6, you can see it all through here, but especially in these two verses that are of interest to us tonight, it begins with the word hear. So it begins with a command. And the word hear is, uh, if you have children, you'll kind of understand this a little more. The word hear doesn't mean just listen to my audible voice and hear the sounds of my voice, right? The word hear here means listen to what I'm saying to you and listen to it with the intent of taking what I say and applying it into your life with obedience, okay? That's like when you say to your kids, I need you to listen to what I'm telling you now. I need the words to go into your ears, get connected to the neurotransmitters within your brain, give it time to process around, right? And result in actions of what I'm about to tell you to do, okay? That's the idea. It says, hear this now, listen to this. And what does he say? He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, And then verse 5, the implication of verse 4, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, okay? So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, meaning he is one in being. This will become very important in weeks to come, so I'm just laying this foundation now. When when we say that that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, We mean he is one in being and the only one in existence. Those two things are very important. He's one in being so that when we get to the full revelation of the New Testament, remember we talked about last week in the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And all of a sudden we see there are three persons who are all God, but there are not three beings. And we'll talk about the distinction in that terminology, how important it is. You know, when you study the doctrine of Trinity, you are one syllable away from heresy at all times. And I'll show that to you from church history. In In some situations, you're one Greek letter away from it. Yeah, Vivi. Oh, he, I'm sorry, did I say Hebrews? Oh, it's Deuteronomy. Yeah, it's the other Hebrews in the Old Testament. It's, a li- it's an inside theologian thing. I, I don't not explain it now, but anyway. That's funny. No, this is Deuteronomy. So the setting is um, Mount Sinai, and you think about it, here you have... Um, the people of Israel who had been in existence for over 400 years, began with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? But then went into the land of Egypt. And in Deuteronomy, they're getting reacquainted with their God and in a very specific way because we believe that Moses wrote 
the vast majority of the Pentateuch delivered to them or the first five books of the Bible and the law delivered to them. And so this would be their written record of who God is, okay? So yeah, we're talking about Deuteronomy here. So hero, uh, so the Lord our God, he is one in being and only one in ex- existence. I would recommend again that you uh, memorize those and, um, and, and commit those to your memory and to your heart here. Uh, and the only fitting re- response, of course, to this one God is what he's showing them is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, strength and might. And Deuteronomy, of course, being the second giving of the law um, after we could say Israel really blew it, shows us that the con- true understanding of the law is that it was given in grace to be obeyed in love. How do you express obedience, or how do you express love to God? You obey him. And he's worthy of that in every area. Heart, right? With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might so that you love him. Now, who's the only one that's ever fulfilled that? Jesus. He's the only one in existence that ever fulfilled that and he did it for us perfectly, right? Okay. Now, let's talk about the existence of God uh, and for a few minutes here. And um, I want to begin with uh, Gene le- left, asked a question last week right at the end. And um, the question was something to the effect, right? Of all cultures have believed there was a God, how did they get it so wrong? Am I right in that? Yeah. And I gave the first part of that answer, which was uh, from on, on the one side, uh, the human perspective of sin. And we're going to look at that again, actually, in Romans 1 in just a few minutes. But Aaron talked to me, we, Aaron and I was t- discussing this afterwards, and he brought up the good point that there's also the other side of that coin, which is the spiritual realm. So that God, or the devil's mission from the very beginning has been to distort the glory of God. Uh, now, as we'll see in Romans 1, uh, human beings are more than willing to cooperate with this distortion and do it themselves. So the, 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 the devil made me do it will never be a right excuse, okay? But, but there is the devil out there. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 said that the God of this age is blinding the minds and hearts of people to keep them from seeing the glory of God. That there is a very real spiritual realm that is very active in blinding and distorting and deceiving, which explains why all these cultures throughout history until the late 19th century believed that there was a God or gods in existence, but yet it was distorted, right? It was so distorted. And now beginning with uh, with Darwin himself, essentially, and those that took the ball and went running with it, now you have the distortion to the extent where there is no God that you're accountable to, okay? But that's spiritual in nature. That is, a, that is the devil wreaking havoc, just what the devil does, the spiritual realm in that. But okay, so how do we know, I wanted to begin with that, how do we know God exists? Well, I think it's important to note first, before we look at any passages or think this through, I think it's important to note that God does not Seek to prove his existence. By that I mean when you open up the Bible, let's, say, uh, let's assume we all do, I think, uh, for the sake of argument, the Bible is the word of God 
and it comes from God, and you open up that first verse, what does it say? First few words. In the beginning, God. Like there is absolutely no attempt on the part of Moses to prove the existence of God. I think that speaks a lot, and that's through the whole Bible. And I think that what we'll see in Romans 1, part of that is because God says, I exist, and you know it. You know I exist. Knowledge of me has never been the issue, okay? And I'll show you that from Romans 1. But that's important because I don't think, uh, I'm not opposed to apologetics, and some of them can be very helpful. And I think in in the way of trying to, uh, uh, you know that word apologetics, uh, apologetics, uh, uh, they they derive that from um, Peter when he says, be ready to give a defense for your faith, in essence, or the hope that is within you, or defense, apologia. Give this defense of the faith. I'm okay with this. And we can hear what the culture's saying. We can respond in certain ways. Um, but I don't think we need to ever feel this overwhelming pressure to answer every objection, to prove and demonstrate that God exists. Because I think, I'll show you from the Bible, but I think the reason we don't feel that pressure is because they know he exists. See, what you'll be armed with tonight, I'll show you this, how Paul reasons through these things about the existence of the one true God and the mess of humanity and all that is coming from the assumption that God exists and that everybody really knows it and that the problem is, yes, on the one hand, sin, and the other hand, the distortion of the devil. But Paul deals in Romans 1 on sin. So look at Romans 1. And again, hear me right, I'm not saying that it's not helpful or good to have answers for objections when you encounter various people that deny the existence of God. I'm just saying that you can be armed with the knowledge of what God says, and that is that they really know there's a God. I never say that you should say to somebody, um, God's real and you know it. And they'll say, no, he's not, and no, I don't. And then you say, yes, he is, and yes, you do. And you do this little ping pong match back and forth. That's not going to profit anybody anything, but you can be armed with some knowledge. Now look at this in Romans 1. He says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a very important phrase for understanding this. These people, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Literally, they push it down, okay? Or they hold it down, right? And then he argues this way. For, let me explain what I mean. For what can be known about God is what? It's plain to them. And when he says what can be known about God, he's not referring to the Bible here in what we would call special revelation. He's talking about creation, the universe, general revelation that everyone has. That's the whole point. Everyone has this revelation of God and he says it's plain to them 
because, look at, God has shown it to them. What do you mean, Paul? Well, for his invisible attributes, that is of God's, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Okay? In other words, he's saying it isn't as though God has been hiding from anyone. And we'll see Paul argue this next week in Acts chapter 17 when he's reasoning with um, these uh, Greek philosophers in Athens. And he's going to appeal to the same thing. They had that, remember they had that tomb called to the unknown God. And he's like, that's interesting. And it was all with all their other gods. He's like, let me tell you about the unknown God. He's the one that created everything. He's the one that's given us the seasons. In other words, I think what he's doing there is he's saying, he's the one you've known has always been there. But you didn't know his name. And you didn't know specific things about him. So let me explain to you the specifics here. But what's he appealing to? He's appealing to their knowledge of, a, of the creator. And this is what Paul's arguing. They, and look at verse, and so they're without excuse. That leaves them without excuse in the sense that God will judge them based on the fact that they suppress the truth about him in their unrighteousness. Because they know about it. In other words, no atheist is ever going to be able to stand before God and say, but I didn't know you exist. I didn't believe you exist. Because God knows that's not true, right? Matter of fact, down in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They did not see fit. They, in the other words, they reasoned it out, okay, because they knew God. They reasoned it out and didn't see fit to keep them in their knowledge, to keep them in mind. So back up in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although, catch this phrase, they knew God They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. When Paul is building his case against humanity, is he not here saying that everyone has knowledge of God when they see creation? He's making it clear whether they'll acknowledge it or not. We're not worried about what men will say. We're not worried about their acknowledgement of it. They'll say, no, I don't know about a God. I can't know God. I'm atheist. I'm agnostic, right? I'm indifferent. I can't know God. But what does the Bible say? They know God. They know God, they, but they would not. They, for although they knew him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the history and the continuation of humanity. That, these are, that the human being knows the existence of God is there because he sees it in creation. It's very plain and evident, and yet they reject it. Why? Because they choose their sin. So they have that knowledge. They reason it out. They say, I don't want to keep this in my mind. I suppress it down in my own sin, 
and then I invent gods of my own making or I'm bold enough to declare there is no God even in the face of the evidence, the very plain, clear evidence of a divine creator, okay? Now, to me, that's helpful if I ever run into a person that claims to not believe in God. It's helpful to me to have information they don't know I have, which is essentially they really know there's a God, but in their thoughts about it, when they reason it out, they don't want it there and they suppress it down. This is why I believe that some of the most prominent uh, atheists, like Sam Harris, you know, or some of the famous scientist atheists you've seen are such evangelists about going about telling everybody there is no God. Like they make it their mission in life so much, they write books about it. Well, why? If you don't believe there's a God, then what do you even jump into the arena for? And I'm just speculating here, but it seems to me possible at least that this is an effort to suppress the truth about what they know about God. If you think about the amazing thing that you can have scientists studying the intricacies of science, the amazingness of it, the very fact of a human life being conceived and developing in the womb and being born out into a little baby and then develop and all that had to go into that and that every time you get a human <laughs> and every time it, you know, there's things that happen and there's this order and everything and to, to, to study that in detail and then arrive at the fact that this all just came into, just came up by chance, I don't believe it. I don't believe they believe that. I think they can convince themselves they've believed it. But according to Romans 1, I don't believe they do. They're suppressing it in their own unrighteousness. And those arguments that Paul is making here, there's two of them. So look on your handout here. These are, these are the last things we'll talk about. But if you look at these traditional, they call them proofs of God's existence. And there's different angles at which you can come at this. I don't think there's one great angle. You know, one is the best for every situation. I, I think there's different angles depending on who you're talking to. Okay? So the first one is the cosmological argument. It's not cosmological argument for cosmetology, but it's cosmological. It comes from the, the Greek word for the cosmos, which is creation, right? And isn't that what Paul's arguing here? Look, this argument goes something like this. Look around you. Look at the creation itself. Look at other human beings. And can't you see in this that clearly this had to come from a divine causer, a being that was outside of all of this that has brought this into existence, right? That would be the argument. Paul's saying that's a strong argument with people because intuitively this is what they, they know. Nobody's really born atheist. You have to develop that over time. You have to really, in a sophisticated way, develop this atheism because this cosmological argument is so convincing. This is why, like we said, 1860s, 70s, 80s, and before, in the history of the world, all over the world, every people group has had some form of deities and creation ideas of how things got, came into existence. 
This is why, the cosmological. Not only that, though, there is the teleological argument, the idea, the telos, the goal, the design. It says, it, it goes a step further and say, don't just look at the creation and see how amazing it is, but look at the creation and see the design of it. And everything seems to have purpose. I remember reading a book that was, this was a number of years ago, trying to convince people of uh, uh, theistic evolution in the sense, and, and Francis Collins was the author of this, and uh, he, he, was, uh, he, he was the head of the Human Genome Project, so a lot smarter than I am in many ways, but he was trying to show how, you know, yeah, there is a God, but he used evolution to do things, here's why, and they were talking about all this junk DNA, well, sure enough, it didn't take long for science to discover, and I'm no expert on this, but there isn't really any such thing as junk DNA. Like, they're finding the purposes of all of it within the body and within, cre- within creation. That these things have purpose and goal and design. The thing is, you might not have discovered it yet in science because science is limited. It keeps growing all the time. And all of a sudden, they see new things. They're like, wow, okay, I see why this fits in here and does all this kind of thing. And that very goal and design points to a creator. But not only that, think about the way people perceive the world itself in the direction of the world. You can talk to unbelievers and they will, seem, they will say things like this. It seems like everything has a purpose in the, uh, how things happen. As a matter of fact, they'll come up with statements like this. Um, everything happens for a reason. Well, if you ever have an unbeliever that says that, say, oh, you're right. Do you want to know who the reason is? The cause of the reason that yes, it all is moving towards something and you as a human being made in the image of God, you know it, you can detect this. That you can discover that. So these are two ways in which the Bible, I think, argues. This is the way Paul would think. And Paul would reason about, uh, see what it is. But there's a third one, and this is the last one. We'll have to stop here in a, few, in a minute and just uh, cover this and I'll open it up. The moral argument, chapter 2 Verses 14 to 16. Remember this when we walk through these verses? He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The idea is there's conflict going on in the heart of every human being, whether they're a Christian or not. Their reasonings going on within them is with their conscience of what is right and what is wrong, whether they should do it or not, and whether they're condemning themselves and feeling guilty about what they've done, or they're excusing themselves and justifying why they've done. All of that shows, says Paul, without one ounce of information about the Ten Commandments, that God has embedded in the heart of the human being a moral consciousness. This is why we know it's wrong to kill somebody, okay? This is why we know it's wrong. We'd feel bad if we did it. We would have to really, over time, sear our conscience, but we know it's wrong, and there would be wrestling going on within us. 
Uh, I don't know if any of you follow um, uh, Ben Shapiro, the political commentator. He uses this all the time. He is a Jew who believes in God. Unfortunately, he doesn't accept Christ, so he's outside of salvation. But he's close, and he interviewed John MacArthur. John MacArthur kept talking about Jesus as the promised Messiah and that, and so... Um, I don't know, uh, Ben doesn't seem like a great listener, more like a great talker, but uh, I don't know if he's listening to you. But the thing is, is this is, this is a, the moral argument. Why do we know it's wrong? Well, I don't know, we just do. Did that evolve over time? And frankly, why do you see such disagreement sometimes among cultures? Why did you have some of the cultures that their moral ticker was bent and they were headhunters? literally, or cannibals? And why do we know that that's wrong? And why is what they're doing wrong anyway? Who's to say it's wrong? Well, in other words, we know that there's a divine moral giver. And because we're made in the image of God, Christian, we know that that's been embedded with us by God, that conscience and the wrestling that goes on with that. Okay, so those are three of the primary key proofs of Um, the existence of God, and I think they're all biblical in their foundation and very logical and very rational, even just to give people something to think about. But we'll end there and let me open it up. Any questions or comments about what we've talked about?